Thank you, Rob. Thank you. And Jesus is that anchor for our soul, that buoy. And he is the rock of our salvation. If you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 2. We're going to look at passage beginning with verse 25. Acts chapter 2, verse 25. We've taken the last two weeks to set our hope on Christ during this tumultuous, chaotic election season with all the uncertainty going on around us. Today we're returning to the book of Acts, looking at the engine who powers the church. And that engine is the Holy Spirit. We've already seen in this mini-series on the book of Acts how the Holy Spirit shines the spotlight on Christ. So the church is Christ-centered by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we've seen uh, through Pastor Rick's message how the Holy Spirit empowers the church for gospel proclamation, gospel witness, to be fearless in evangelism. And today we're going to look at Holy Spirit affections. Holy Spirit affections. So starting from Acts chapter 2, verses 25, we'll be reading until verse 33. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Let's open with the prayer. This is a prayer from the book Valley of Vision. O oh God, the Holy Spirit, help us to find in his death, in the death of Jesus, the reality and immensity of his love. Open for us the wondrous volumes of truth in his, it is finished. Increase our faith in the clear knowledge of atonement achieved, expiation completed, Satisfaction made, guilt done away, our debts paid, our sins forgiven, our persons redeemed, our souls saved, hell vanquished, heaven opened, eternity made ours. O Holy Spirit, deepen in us these saving lessons. Write them on our heart that our walk with Christ be sin-loathing, sin-fleeing, and christ loving. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. And may that be true because God is among us, dwelling with us by his spirit. Church, what's the longest you've had to wait for something? Maybe you're in school and you're waiting for summer vacation, or you're in school and you're waiting for that big graduation day. Maybe you've been praying and you're waiting for a dear friend or family member to come to faith in Jesus Christ. We actually have one church member. If you haven't heard her 
testimony, I encourage you to talk to her about it, who prayed 30 years for her mother to come to faith in Christ. And very near to the end of her life, she professed faith. She repented and trusted Christ after 30 years of witnessing and praying. That testimony encourages me to keep asking and seeking and knocking and not to give up and to hunger more for God, more for God to work. Well, in Numbers chapter 11, God appoints, this is going back a little bit in redemptive history, God appoints 70 elders to help Moses and the Spirit comes upon them upon these 70 leaders, but the Spirit only comes upon 70 of them, not to everyone in the congregation. So only these 70 elders got to experience a fullness of the Spirit, while the rest of the congregation didn't. And Moses, in that moment, he cries out with a desire, with a wish, Oh, would all that Lord's, the Lord's people were prophets, and that the Lord would put His Spirit on all of them. And so for over a thousand years, before Pentecost, God's people have been waiting for an outpouring, for a fullness of the experience of the Holy Spirit. And God's people waited for a thousand years for something that Moses wished for. He wished for. And that thousand year wait finally came to an end on the day of Pentecost. The day of Pentecost. So we are in the church age, the age of the Spirit, where all of God's people, young and old, male and female, leader, member, pastor, all, each one of us, we experience the fullness of the Holy Spirit's presence and power that previous generations could only dream about. And so today we're going to see that the, when the Holy Spirit comes, we experience Holy Spirit affections. Romans 14, chapter 14, 17, 17 says, The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And church, that's for us today. As God's people, we get to experience the fullness of the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. Something that the church waited for a thousand years, but we get to experience now because we live post-Pentecost. And we've already seen in, in an earlier message that the day of Pentecost, on that day, Peter preaches a message proclaiming the risen Christ. And that's in Acts chapter 2. This Jesus whom you crucified, God raised up. And made him both Lord and Christ. And in the middle of this sermon, we see a quotation from Psalm 16. That's the basis of my message today. And you might be wondering, why Psalm 16? There's so many psalms, so many passages in the Old Testament. Why does Peter pick this one to quote at length? This is why. Psalm 16 is a psalm of deliverance out of death and into life in the presence of God. King David wrote Psalm 16. And he probably wrote it before he was crowned king. And if you remember, he spent years of his life on the run as a despised and rejected man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. You see, the current king was a man named King Saul. He didn't want David to be king, so he tried to hunt down, kill, and execute David. He tried to kill him. And several times he gets so close to capturing and executing David. It's all documented in the books of 1st and 2nd Samuel. If you've not read it, go home, read it. It reads like a blockbuster novel, blockbuster action film. And each time you think Saul's got him, Saul's cap he's about to capture David, David's over, God miraculously rescues David, and God preserves him. 
Look at verse 27 of Acts chapter 2. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You see, David was preserved. God preserved his life. And he would go on to be king of Israel for 40 years. He wasn't caught. He wasn't killed. But obviously, you know, he grew old. He died and he was buried. And his tomb is still with us to this day. But his supernatural rescue from death, from those who would seek to kill him, that supernatural rescue from Saul and death was a foreshadow, an anticipation of a greater deliverance from David's greater son, King Jesus. That's why Peter quotes that. So let's look at verses 31 and 33. He, this is David, David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, an outpouring of the Spirit that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. And Psalm 16, Psalm 16 finds is its fulfillment in the glorification of Jesus on Easter Sunday and on Pentecost. And when the Holy Spirit comes, everything is changed for God's people. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. So we're going to unpack these three Holy Spirit affections, righteousness, peace, and joy. Obviously, there's much more than these three, but this is a starting point in our lifelong journey of walking with Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. So let's look at righteousness. Verse 28. You have made known to me paths of life. Another phrase for paths of life could very well be paths of righteousness. You remember from Psalm 23, God's people are led in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. A path that delivers us from eternal death into eternal life. And there's a, that's what we see all throughout the Bible, a pattern and a warning that the righteous, those who are on the paths of righteousness, enter into eternal life while the wicked go, go into eternal punishment. But here's the reality that we often don't hear. We definitely don't hear in our culture. The reality is that we have all strayed from the paths of righteousness and life. Ever since the fall, every human being, including every one of us here, we would prefer our way instead of God's way. And here's the sobering news. So few people walk on paths of righteousness. Most of the human race, most people who will ever exist on planet Earth walk straight into eternal judgment. Jesus said, enter by the narrow gate. Enter life by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and the way is easy that leads to destruction. Wide is the gate that leads to death. So by default, each one of us are going through that wide and easy way that leads to destruction. And your only hope, my only hope today is for God to supernaturally pick us up and place us on a new path, the path of righteousness in life. And if you're here this morning or watching on this uh, broadcast on Facebook, if you're watching 
or you're oppressed and you have not yet repented of your sins and surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, looking to his perfect sacrifice on the cross for your forgiveness, if you have not yet done that, we plead with you to do that today, to run to Christ and hide in him today, to trust in his perfect and complete sacrifice on the cross for you today, to flee from the wrath to come today. And if you have done that, you are trusting Christ, looking to him for life and righteousness, then you are in him. You are in Christ. You are in him. The phrase in Christ and in him is used over 160 times in the New Testament. It's central to understanding what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. The life of a Christian is lived in him, in Christ. So what does that mean to be in Christ? Well, it means that you are chosen in him before the foundation of the world. It means you have redemption through his blood. It means you have, there's no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. On the day of judgment, you are free and clear. It means that if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. And that means Christ is our righteousness. He is our life. The Christian knows the realities of Galatians 2.20 when Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's the reality of a Christian, of a disciple. But how do we experience that? Oftentimes, we're not experiencing that. How do we experience that life in Christ? To experience that moment-by-moment understanding and awareness and celebration that Christ is my righteousness? Well, it's only by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's only by the Holy Spirit. Everything Jesus Christ is for us and has done for us remains outside of us unless the Spirit applies it to us. Let me say that once more. Everything Jesus Christ is for us and done for us remains outside of us unless the Spirit applies it to us. So that means when the gospel is preached, a sinner remains dead in sin unless the Spirit breathes life. Jesus Christ is the righteousness of God, but we can't access that apart from the Holy Spirit until the Holy Spirit joins us to Christ. But when he does... It changes everything. It changes everything. And that's what the book of Acts is all about. The church empowered to live for Jesus, to be on mission for Jesus. So let's see the Spirit on the move, bringing about that righteousness of Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 9, verse 31 says, The church was walking in the fear of the Lord. That means the church was taking Jesus seriously, taking Jesus' commands, his word, seriously. In Acts chapter 15, we see a disagreement on how New Testament Christians should pursue righteousness. There was a disagreement on what to do with the Old Testament law. The Mosaic laws can be roughly divided into three parts. We have the ceremonial law, the civil law, and the moral law. And the Christians in Acts chapter 15 wrestled, what do you do with these three sections of law? We know Jesus is our righteousness. What do you do with the ceremonial, 
civil, and the moral law. Well, number one, we know Jesus fulfilled the ceremonial law in his once-for-all sacrifice. That's why when you come to church, you're not bringing your animal. You're not bringing an animal to sacrifice because Jesus died once for all for the forgiveness of our sins. He fulfilled the ceremonial law. Well, number two, Jesus also fulfilled the civil law governing Israelite society. But what about us? Do those laws apply to the church? Do we need those laws for our ongoing pursuit of righteousness? Do Gentiles need to be circumcised? Do we have to keep those Jewish dietary laws? Do we have to be kosher as Christians? Well, the apostles rejected that. They clearly stated that righteousness is found in Christ, not keeping the law. And number three, finally, Jesus most certainly fulfilled the moral law. He lived a perfect life of righteousness for us. So what about us? If Jesus fulfilled the moral law of God, can we live however we want? Shall we sin more so that grace could abound more? Well, no way. No way. If you're a disciple of Christ, if you are found in him, you died to sin and you are alive to Jesus Christ. You can't love sin and love Christ at the same time. It's impossible. So in Acts chapter 15, the apostles affirmed that we still keep the moral law of God in the pursuit of our righteousness. So out of the three, the ceremonial, the civil, and the moral law of God, only the moral law applies to the church today. The apostles, they said no to idolatry. They said no to sexual immorality. Those are still off limits for the church today. So in Acts 15, the apostles, they affirmed the Ten Commandments. And that makes sense because we, we know that Jesus preached on the Ten Commandments and he expanded upon them for the church today. At this point, you might be wondering, well, I thought we were saved by grace through the perfect righteousness of Christ. Why do we need to keep the law? Why do we have to keep the law? Well, I'm so glad you asked. Christians keep the moral law of God not to earn our way into heaven, but because we have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit produces holiness within us. Keeping the law is the evidence, the evidence that we've been born again and we are in Christ. So a Christian strives to live a holy life, strive to put sin to death because we want to be holy as he is holy. We want to be righteous as Christ is righteousness. We want to be like him. Doesn't mean we never mess up. We still fall short at times. But God, in his grace, picks us up and puts us back on paths of righteousness for his name's sake. But it's not popular today to proclaim and call us, call ourselves, call the church to follow the moral law of God. It's not popular to say no to sexual immorality. Why say no to something when it feels so good? Why say no? Why deny yourself pleasure? Why put temptation to death? Well, for the disciple of Jesus Christ, it's because we love Jesus. We love him. We love his righteousness. We love his character. We love his person. We love his work. We know him. We love Jesus and we hate sin. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verses 29 and 30, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. 
If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. And for the Christian, we take those words to heart and we cut off the right hand. We tear out the eye. If that causes us to sin, if it causes us to be apart from Christ. So that's Acts chapter 15. We see the apostles boldly proclaim the moral law of God and calling the church to pursue righteousness in the Holy Spirit. Let's look at Acts chapter 19. Here's another example of the church being led by the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 19 verses 18 through 20. Many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So we see in Acts chapter 19, a group of disciples, they come under conviction. They come under conviction that their magic arts and their sorcery was idolatry. And they had to get rid of it no matter the cost. So they burned all their magic books. Got to imagine what their neighbors thought, what other people thought when they saw this bonfire, when they saw $6 million worth of books go up in smoke. But they loved Jesus. They loved righteousness. It was worth it to them. The question for you and for me is, how much is righteousness worth to you? And by the power of the Holy Spirit, you can do exactly the same thing that those Christians did in Acts chapter 19 to get rid of whatever might cause you to stumble. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. We've looked at righteousness in the Holy Spirit. Now let's look at peace in the Holy Spirit. Let's look back at Acts chapter 2, verse 25. I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. That I may not be shaken. We all long for peace. We all long for a state of mind that we are not shaken, not given to anxiety or danger. And even if you have peace in one area of your life, if you lack peace in another, you don't really have peace. There's peace in your home, but rioting in the streets, there's no peace. If you have peace at home, but your soul is not at peace with God, well, then you don't have peace. True peace means that we are at peace with God, with ourselves, and with everything else. Romans chapter 5, verse 1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. If you have been justified by faith, your sins are washed away. You have peace with God. And true peace begins here. It begins with having peace with God, knowing that on the final day of judgment, your sins are washed away by the blood of Jesus, that there's no more guilt, no more condemnation, that you are free and clear. And knowing that your greatest need has been met by the greatest act of love, that gives you true peace. The danger for us is that we can get so familiar with that, so familiar with that blood sacrifice of Jesus Christ, so familiar with God giving up his own son. And that's the danger for each one of us, that we can fall away from our first love. But if you have peace with God, 
if you know that God is for you, who can be against you? If God is for you, God's already done that for you, given up his only son, then no one, no circumstance, no sin, nothing in creation can ultimately take your peace away. The peace of Christ transcends all circumstances, all situations, and guards our hearts and minds. Jesus said in John chapter 14, verses 26 and 27, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And here's the key. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. But all too often, that is not our day-to-day experience reality. Our peace, I don't know about you, but my peace gets so easily shaken. What takes away your peace? Maybe it's the pandemic that never seems to come to an end. Maybe it's the increasing polarization of our country. Maybe it's the stress at home or stress at work. A lack of peace, anxiety in our hearts is God's diagnostic tool to show us the condition of our heart. So don't throw away your anxiety. Don't just brush it off lightly. Allow the presence of anxiety to change you and to pause and to consider what has taken root into my heart that's taking away my peace. What has pushed away the peace of Christ and burrowed into my heart? As parents, we can so often push aside the peace of Christ with the need for a certain definition of peace in our home. We can think, well, as long as my kids obey me, chores are done, things are on schedule, ah, then I will have peace. But we all know that kids don't always obey us. Those chores aren't always done. We're not often on schedule. And the Holy Spirit often reveals to me how often things have burrowed into my heart and replaced the peace of Christ. And we need to, I need to, come back to the true source of peace, which is Christ by the Holy Spirit. And that means Christ is my peace when nothing went right today. That means Christ is my peace when my kids are melting down. Christ is my peace when I get that dreaded report. In joining us to Christ, the Holy Spirit gives us an unshakable peace. An unshakable peace. And it's a peace for today. It's a peace that God holds out for you for every single day of your life until the last day of your life. And this is so beautifully illustrated in Stephen, the first martyr of the Christian church. Even in his dying breath, he was filled with the peace of Christ. In Acts chapter 7, verses 55 through 60, we read this. But he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. 
And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Stephen was a man at peace, even in his dying breath, because he had the peace of Christ. And finally here, as we try to wrap up, the righteousness that the Holy Spirit gives, I mean, the, uh, the joy that the Holy Spirit gives us. As you look all throughout the book of Acts, you see the apostles filled with the joy of the Lord, a joy that didn't, didn't depend on happy circumstances. These apostles, they were beaten. They were stoned. They were run out of town. But they were rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer the name of Christ. And there's a difference between happiness and joy. Happiness can depend on external circumstances. It's like kids opening presents on Christmas Day. They're happy, but once the moment fades, they're looking for the next thrill, the next happy moment. But that's not the joy we experience as Christians. It's a joy rooted in who Christ is, what Christ has done, and the promises of God. That even if we're being killed or stoned or suffering persecution, we know the joy of the Lord. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 44, Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. And then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. In the parable, the man stumbles upon a treasure, but he has to, but he has to have that treasure. And in order to have that treasure, he has to sell everything so he can buy that field and gain that treasure. But notice his response. Does he complain? Does he sell everything begrudgingly and with grumbling and complaining? Oh, why do I have to get rid of this? Why do I have to sell this? I guess I have to get rid of this so I can get this treasure. No. In his joy, he goes and sells all that he has because he wants that treasure. And that's the reality of us as followers of Christ. In our joy, we would gladly lay down everything, give up everything that we might gain Christ. We might gain Christ. Let me conclude with these verses from uh, Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 11. Uh, Starting from 7, actually. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Be found in him. Church, we have the Holy Spirit. We have the power to enjoy righteousness peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So let's ask, let's pursue, let's experience that. So let me pray for us. Father, we confess that we don't pursue those Holy Spirit affections like we ought. We confess how often we are complacent, we are forgetful, we are proud. We find our identity in so many other things, things that rob us of true peace and true joy. And so, Father, we are desperate. We are desperate for you, Holy Spirit, like a widow pleading for justice against her adversary. We are desperate, like a neighbor going to a friend at midnight asking for loaves of bread for another friend. We are desperate, so we ask and seek and knock. We are desperate knowing that even as 
sinful fathers know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more, how much more, Father, will you give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? In Jesus' name, amen.